This is Fix It. I'm Nishant. And I'm Kevin. Today, we're taking a close look at how we report on the Supreme Court with Adam Liptak from The New York Times. Adam is the Supreme Court correspondent for The New York Times. It's a role he's maintained since 2008, but he's been writing on developments in American law for much longer. Back in 2005, for example, he did a three-part series on the rise in life sentences in the U.S. You could say that Adams made quite a career at the Times. He began way back in 1984 as a copy boy, became a summer clerk during law school, and later used that legal background to pen a number of law review articles, mainly on First Amendment topics. That's why we're so thrilled to have Adam here today to tell us more about Supreme Court reporting. Welcome, Adam. It's great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit how your reporting on the Supreme Court has changed from 2008 to 2020? The main way in which it's changed is the speed with which I have to get stuff done. Uh, My predecessor, Linda Greenhouse, who covered the court for 30 years, uh, would only write for the print newspaper, which would mean something would happen at 10 o'clock in the morning, and she would uh, read the decision digest it, consult with experts, have a sandwich for all I know, take a nap. And, you know, as the sun was setting over Washington, she'd file a very good 1500 word story. I literally have to file something within minutes of when the court acts, which means what the reader gets in the first draft is just a kind of who won and who lost and a lot of background material. And then I improve it through the day. And I hope that by the end of the day, what I produce is of similar quality to Linda's. But I fear that there's an inverse relationship between the size of the readership and the quality of the output. So the the, the quick early draft gets a much bigger readership. And there, there's, there's a frustration with that. At the same time, we're a news organization. And we owe it to our readers to give them the news as fast as we can. And can you talk about how you've tried to balance with that tight time deadline, conveying expertise and in-depth analysis of a topic to someone like me, who, for example, is a law school student versus the general readership of the New York Times? You know, Kevin, that's an excellent question. And it's a real struggle to put the needle in the right place among several competing factors. Accessibility is important, but so is accuracy. And the law is complicated. So I I think of a quotation attributed to Einstein, maybe he actually said it, is make everything as simple as possible, but no simpler. And so sometimes the material itself will just by its nature have to be too complicated to penetrate someone's consciousness who doesn't have some legal training. And I do think the Times' audience, I'm lucky in this, is a little more educated, a little more sophisticated than the audiences for which some of my colleagues write. One thing we haven't talked about yet is there's a very big and sophisticated Supreme Court press corps. So another frustration of the job is you're writing basically the same story as 20 other people are writing, and you're trying to bring to it some extra element, some context, some some expertise, which was sort of where your question was heading. So Adam, one thing that we've seen the rise of in the past couple of years is an increased politicization around the debate about the Supreme Court, and consequently around the reporting about the Supreme Court. And would love to get your take on the extent to which you see news coverage of the Supreme Court mapping onto partisan debates of the current day. 
Right. So I, I agree with the first half of the question that probably starting with in earnest and the latest go round in 2016, when Republicans in the Senate wouldn't give Merrick Garland a hearing, there's been intense political pressure on the Supreme Court and it's been viewed, viewed through a very partisan lens. The other thing that happened going back just a little bit further is really for the first time in American history, starting in 2010, we have a closely divided court where five uh, appointees to the right are all uh, appointed by Republican presidents and four to the left, all by Democrats, which sort of sounds normal, but is, is unknown in the history of the United States. And that maps onto political polarization completely. And that's very unfortunate. And the second part of the question was, does this affect news coverage? And if by what we mean by news coverage is traditional news organizations? I don't think so. I think we and my colleagues who have hard passes and cover the court every day cover it pretty straight. And it's a beat that's not hard to be balanced on because you have excellent briefs on both sides. If you just fairly reflect what they say and you have a majority opinion and a dissent, if you just fairly reflect what they say, you don't have the problem that the White House reporters have, that the climate change reporters have of having to balance out who, uh, who, who should get what level of attention. Now, there's a lot of coverage of the court of, of a more advocacy nature, you know, opinion journalists. And I suppose that's gotten more heated as the society's gotten more heated, but that's not really my lane. And I don't always follow that stuff very closely. Adam, I'm curious how you think about the openness of the court. There's always debates about the extent to which, for example, the oral argument should be live streamed or open up to a broader array of the public. And you just mentioned kind of this credentialed press system that right. makes sure that only certain experts, right, are able to sit in and attend these hearings and get a better live understanding of the debates. Do you see that as a way of ensuring quality reporting or is the con, the kind of exclusive nature of that, a larger factor that should be weighed uh, more heavily? So I'm not sure what the court's motivations are in its credentialing system. I think it's mostly just a resource allocation problem. There are a certain number of seats set aside for the press and you have to use some kind of uh, credentialing system. As it happens, uh, basically everybody who does the job uh, consistently and for something like a mass audience is able to get a seat. I don't think it's so much about expertise. It's more about commitment and reach. Uh, but I don't think it's healthy. I don't, the court is the government. The government shouldn't be making distinctions among uh, speakers. And, you know, a lot of this could be solved if there was just real-time mass access to the court, which of course we did see during the telephonic hearings in May, which were made available live to the public and went reasonably well. I guess in the back of my mind, I have the feeling, well, if if they open it to everybody, what do they need me for? And it turns out you, you kind of need a translator unless, unless you have someone to guide you through it or unless you yourself are a very sophisticated appellate lawyer, you're not going to know what the hell is going on. Do you think it's possible, Adam, for uh, you and uh, other reporters who cover this beat to, to report in a way that allows the public to get 
a more legal sense of these cases? Or do you think partisanship is too much of a draw on our attention and we're much more motivated and drawn to those polarized debates? Well, it's certainly, I certainly have the legal material in every single story. Sometimes, though, the political salience of the thing, you know, in a Trump subpoena case, people aren't necessarily as interested in how the court feels about the presidency as opposed to the particular president. And that's unavoidable. But what we're talking about, at least where I'm concerned, is not whether these competing elements are in the story, but how big they are in the story. So assuming, and this is a big assumption that people read to the bottom, they're going to get everything they need to know, although it may be front loaded with uh, the stuff many people really care about. And there's also the, I don't I was about to say the problem, but it's just the reality that it is a 5-4 court that is politically skewed a lot of the time. And, you know, that's, that's on them. That's not on me. So as a law school student, I'm taught to have a high regard for the Supreme Court as an institution and not necessarily as a political branch, uh, but more as just a branch of the government in the abstract. And so I wonder how you process renewed calls for reshaping the court. For example, Pete Buttigieg uh, advocating for a 15-person Supreme Court with five Republicans, five Democrats, and five non-affiliated justices. What do you make of these increasing calls to reshape how our court actually looks? Uh, Well, I think it's a product of frustration, a product of the Merrick Garland episode, and of while the court has been full of surprises lately on some kinds of cases, on cases involving democracy, voting rights, campaign finance, uh, labor unions, it has been a pretty solid 5-4 pro-Republican court, which makes the left very frustrated. And, uh, you know, their reaction is a version of uh, court backing, of increasing the size of the court, which, of course, it can be done by Congress. It's not in the Constitution that the court has nine members. It's, it's a statute. And it can go up and down. My impulse is that it's a terrible idea, that it will give rise to tit for tat, that it will do damage to the legitimacy of the court. And although Democrats think the court is in ways illegitimate already, uh, be careful what you wish for, because it's a valuable institution. And finally, Adam, is there one common misconception you hear from your readers, perhaps in the comment section, or just in general, when you tell folks that you're a Supreme Court reporter, that you would like to correct for our fixer community? Common misconception. Um, Geez. I'm coming up dry. I'm, I, 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 I want to give you guys something, but I'm, draw, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Well, it's trivial, but since I work for the New York Times, everyone always assumes I live in New York. And sadly, I had to move to Washington 12 years ago when I started covering the court. So I, I don't know if there's anything to fix there, although the pandemic, you really could cover the court remotely now. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Not all New York Times reporters live in New York. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. We look forward to reading more of your reporting in the future. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, Fixers, for tuning in to another episode. Please use hashtag Fixer to tell us about problems you're solving in your community. Tweet us at fix underscore cast, and be sure to spread the word. See you next time, Fixers.